Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman as we continue to talk to our academics about various aspects of the coronavirus pandemic. This week, my guest is Ravina Barrett, Senior Lecturer in Pharmacy Practice, who is currently volunteering as a medical research ethicist for the Health Research Authority, which provides ethical approval for all coronavirus studies in the UK. Ravina, thanks for your time. How are you doing and how have you found the way that we've had to adapt in these past few months. Thank you for having me, Richard. Um, we have adapted, haven't we? <laughs> we have done uh, about turn on practically everything, but I think we've shown great resilience. I think we've shown great unity, great team spirit. We've taken everybody with us. So I think we've done really well. Um, and, and everything is still working. You know, things aren't stopped because of um the coronavirus we're finding new ways of doing old things and it's not it's not stymieing us completely but we are adapting rapidly so yeah it's been good mm. it's great to have you on because slightly different angle to what we've been talking about previously and about the coronavirus pandemic because there's lots to talk about with possible drug treatments for covid19 before we get to that point let's find out a little bit about you first can you give us a little whistle stop tour of your career and how you've ended up at, at this point yeah so um i was studying pharmacy at the school of pharmacy in the university of portsmouth i graduated in 2005 and registered as a pharmacist in 2006. um since then i've been working as a pharmacist i got my first job as a pharmacy manager for roland's pharmacy and then um i was no coming after that my pre-registration year was with Southampton General Hospital, so I had a very good um, scientific tertiary hospital kind of grounding to, I think, the art and science of pharmacy practice. I went uh, into locum work. I came back as a clinical trials pharmacist, again, at the University of Southampton, uh, Southampton General Hospital. And in that job, something magical happened which was that i learned that science and research could be breathtakingly um rapid fast life-changing um and that was where my kind of interest in research began because as the clinical trials pharmacist i was working with novel drug entities um technologies that will become mainstream in 15 20 years time and an example of that is for example we would did the first in the uk clinical trial where we were inserting autologous stem cells from the brain tissue of a Parkinson's sufferer to try and reintroduce them to the areas of damage in their brain to see if it would develop into viable, normal brain neuronal tissue. Um, and that's that's like that's amazing scientifically that's amazing and from a patient perspective a patient goes from having parkinson's potentially disease to having very little parkinson's disease or you know restructuring and development of neuronal tissue that in their 60s or 70s that we didn't think was possible to be viable um, and those types of clinical trials are happening everywhere in the world today they're happening in parts of bodies like brains, knees, hips, you know, the things that will wear out when I'm in my 80s. I'd love to see the science catch that now so that you and I can be true about it. <laughs> yeah. but, but, it's, but it's amazing science. Like when I was studying pharmacy, I never thought I would be part of that work. Mm. And it's that work that keeps me going. It's that work um, that I feel, yeah, we need to do research incremental research okay but leap leaping kind of research also is you know inspirational mm. it, it will be the star trek you know kind of future <laughs> yeah and where was the original um where the ambition to to work in pharmacy come from originally um it's a, a very asian thing i suppose um i come from a culture and a background where you know, girls especially are encouraged to become professionals because in the world, you know, and I look at my kids and I look at my students and I think 
yeah, that's how it should be. The future is uncharted and we have to develop skills, not because we think we will get a job, but because we need those essential skills that will become more essential over time. Um, and it's investing in those skills that keeps you relevant. And I think that's, um, that's the most important thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's not what you learn sometimes. It's also how you learn to learn, <laughs> meta-learn. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of key. Yeah. Okay, let's get stuck in. Um, lots of focus in the media about finding a vaccine for COVID-19. And clearly, that's the ideal solution. But existing drug treatments could be a pretty good answer. And it's not talked about quite as much um, in the UK, I don't think, the drug treatments ahead of the vaccine. Um, so first off, can you tell us what you're doing relating to that research? What we need to do, or what we're doing anyway in clinical practice, is that we're trying out current drugs, current licensed medicines, to see how well they may help us solve these problems. Because we don't know, we haven't fully characterized the COVID-19 um, kind of pathology, and we don't know what the long-term effects are, short-term effects are, medium-term effects are. I, I, what my argument is that you cannot wait for drugs to be custom-made because that's too long for parts of our population. Now, I'm not just thinking about UK population. I'm thinking about the global population. And, and the reason I'm thinking about it is because we're very lucky. We live in the UK. We have the NHS. We are government funded. We will attempt to save every patient. But, you know, there are parts of the world like Africa, like India, like parts of China, where people are living hand to mouth. They're living from day to day and living and dying of hunger or thirst or an infection is still kind of, gosh, you know, I still have enough money to live hand to mouth. You can't wait to find a magic bullet. And the more I learn about drugs, the more I realize there is no magic bullet. There is a scattergun approach that we use towards a therapeutic target. And we have a scattergun kind of adverse drug reaction profile as well. And that's with any new drug. There is an uncharted territory with all new adverse drug reactions. Most of them, the most common ones, will have been picked up through clinical trials. But the rare, the unexpected, the life-threatening will be rarer by definition. And you won't pick that up until it's played out in the market for two, three, four, five years, potentially. So not all licensed drugs that come out of COVID-19 will remain licensed drugs, say, in a 10-year time frame. Now, what my argument is that we have drugs from the prior decade where we have a full characterization of their intended effects, but also their unintended effects. We understand their mechanisms of action as best as we do, and maybe we could redeploy those off license. So they're not licensed for this treatment, but maybe we could redeploy those um, towards solving some of the problems here. So some of the literature coming out, now I don't know how reliable or credible or rep reproducible it is, but it's suggesting things like there are blood clots that people aren't necessarily potentially dying of the reason they're dying of asphyxiation and they need ventilation is because they're developing blood clots within their lungs or their brains. And they're young people, you know, in my kind of age group are dying of strokes, not necessarily a respiratory failure. And those are the kinds of questions we, we need to think preemptive therapies. Should there be preemptive therapies that while we're ventilating them, should we be uh, thinning their blood? Maybe they may be at great risk of bleeding to death if they have trauma or injury. But would that mean they won't clot and bleed and form clots that end up in their brain and having a stroke? You know. Um, so it's a really interesting, it's a really big question yeah. that you ask. And how you solve this is also going to remain a really big answer. It won't be a single thing. No. It will be a multitude of adjuvant and parallel therapies and treatments mm. that will have to be employed. And why, why shouldn't we begin with, you know, some of the things perhaps we're looking at, say, cystic fibrosis. These patients, they have a lot of mucus production in their lungs. 
they already suffer from increased risk of lung infections. Could we use some of those strategies and therapies we use in this patient group to okay COVID patients? I don't know. I could be wrong. But what I'm saying is, let, let's not get overly fixated on one solution. Yeah, I mean, the, the one that comes up a lot is remdesivir, isn't it? Um, which I understand... Was it, was it, I understand that was originally developed for treatment of hepatitis C and it was used for Ebola. Um, I think in the USA, there's a lot of conversation about this, I think in the mainstream media as well. Um, not, not so much that, but what are the sort of studies? But why are people getting excited about that as a possibility? So remdesivir is an antiviral drug and it happens to be a drug that I reviewed for clinical trial approval, fast track clinical trial approval through the HRA, as you mentioned in your introduction, or use in the UK. Um, so that was a multi-center, multi-institutional global study whereby Gilead, the parent company, was trying to get this drug um, used in COVID-19 patients so that we can find out what the outcome is and whether it saves lives or not. And the conclusion actually was it didn't meet its primary objectives. It didn't reduce the time in, in harm's way. It didn't reduce the number of people who died. It didn't, uh, it didn't do the primary things it was supposed to do. However, it's been licensed in the USA by the FDA. And their chief uh, officer has come out and said that he supports it. Um, and he has said, that it reduces, uh, it, it has benefit in secondary outcomes, which is that it, those people who survive have fewer adverse effects. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a wonderful success, but clinically, it's still a bit feeble. Now, I could be wrong. This is the other thing. We don't have sufficient data. The clinical trial data was based on a number of patients and it was an expedited licensing process which means the regulatory hurdles that are in place for normal medicines were a little bit lower um, i can't say any more than that because again the material that i read was confidential but what's in the public domain is everything that i've discussed with you so far and for me as a as a pharmacist, I think buyer beware. I think we don't know as much as we would like to know. But then again, you know, when we come, when we deal with people's lives, we we, we like more certainty than saying again a game of Russian roulette or something like that. Yeah, and and there's um, obviously so much urgency about it. Obviously, there's there's you know people want to find the the solution. I mean, forgive the naivety, but that um for my but this is the angle I'll, I'll come at it from. Is there a potential solution? I think you kind of spoke a little bit about this just now, a, a potential situation where existing licensed drugs could be combined in one sort of cocktail, if you will, which then works as a treatment. It's just finding those ratios and those drug treatments that actually work well enough. I, I completely agree with you. Okay. Yes. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, so how likely is it that that drug treatment will be found? I think we will find it. Um, it's not, I mean, we have to find it. We don't have an alternative. Um, we will find something. Um, it, with, in terms of vaccines, again, you know, you have to really ask some big questions about vaccination. Do we support vaccination? There is a huge anti-vaccine lobby. I mean, they have put health, public health care back hundreds of years in, in parts of the country, you know, parts like UK, we were having outbreaks of measles. Good God, if people aren't getting children vaccinated for some basic fundamental things, will they get vaccinated for coronavirus? I, I, I want there to be a vaccine that works, and I am a proponent of the vaccination schedule. But I think you have to also understand the social political environment that we live in. And not addressing that is going to be problematic. And the, and the one thing we should be doing now, even before the vaccine is found for, for this crisis, is to encourage vaccination, is to dis 
this banned the misinformation being spread about vaccination. And yes, there are adverse drug reactions to vaccination, but we trial them in clinical trials before we roll them out to everybody. Um, so there is a very good safety profile available already for our simple basic immunization schedule that we start from childhood and targeting young parents, making sure their children get all the vaccinations, not just one out of the three boosters. Mm-hmm. It is really important that message we should be drumming home now so that when the virus vaccine is available, we can invite people, everybody who wants to get vaccinated to get vaccinated and or consider mandatory vaccination. I I mean, that's politically difficult Um, and you'd never want to be in that position if you were the government or a regulatory agency. But I think the public health aspect of vaccination we need to start talking about straight away so that when it's available, we have high rates of subscription from the members of the general public. We also need to think about vaccination overall. Those people through the winter flu, those people who are above 60 years of age, those with respiratory conditions, those who are pregnant, children, anybody at risk, including healthcare workers, should have access to and or be provided with these vaccines 100% of the times. They shouldn't be able to say, oh, I was too busy, I didn't, couldn't get out of work, or I forgot, or whatever. There should be so much invite that you can't forget, you can't escape it. And so by the time they've been invited for the 10th time, okay, they've made a decision not to attend. And then we okay, we respect that. But we also should monitor those statistics because like we're finding out through this coronavirus, those people who are at lower, um, you know, who are at higher risk, these group, groups of people I've talked about, they are at higher risk of coronavirus. And maybe if we could manage their underlying health conditions better, more tightly, maybe they wouldn't succumb quite so easily to some of these things. So I think just good housekeeping might be, mm. <laughs> sounds so boring. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting, that's but, an interesting point. Mm. Mm. I think um, obviously there's going to be a, a massive rush on the vaccine whenever it does come out and whoever finds it first. And there's obviously some huge political issues there whenever it does come um, be- because of that. And because we, you know, we just don't know when we're going to find this vaccine. We don't know really when we're going to find the drug treatment that is most effective, but because of the fact that there could be some existing drugs that could, that could work, is that more likely to come first before the vaccine? Yeah. I think so. That's my personal opinion. It's not caveated by any science. Mm. I'm not privy to any further information, but I think we're going to, because we have to at this moment, we're going to try um, combinations and permutations of drug therapies from a different variety of fields. And we're going to try in small batches of people across the world, and we're going to report as clinicians successes. And what's going to happen is we're going to find simple simple things but the timing of which may be important and or we may find combinations that are more synergistic together um those type of things will get published quite quickly um because there will be case reports case series and right now i can see in the research literature it's not uh, hugely evidence-based but it is based on these types of studies that are considered low quality uh, usually but at the moment this is what we have. So we're going to stick with it. And I think those therapies, wherever people can report success, they will get published. They will get picked up. From your experience, I'm interested to know this um, from a, again, from that sort of political point of view, geopolitical point of view, really. Um, Will there be a situation where countries may not share quick enough what they found how has it worked in the past? And could you see that situation occurring where there's a delay and there maybe didn't need to be to get it worldwide? I hope not. I don't, I'm... Because obviously they're massive. They're huge. They make, so, they make a lot of money. It's a, it's, a, it's a business as well as a cure. Yeah. And I think this is, okay, let's take a zoom angle let's take a 
backward step forward. Mm. I think immediately scientists will not, um, they will rush to publish. But I think there will be a lot of pressures. Uh, and we've already seen this with the Trump administration. There are a lot of pressures on championing in-house um, bodies of research. Back uh, after the Second World War, again, we saw there was championing of domestic commercial slash academic institutions. Now, I mean, there are so many flaws in my argument and I'm going to probably make such uh, uh, fallacious comments, but companies both in the UK, in Germany, in France, in many European countries, as well as the USA, they were all academic institutions that found novel drugs that were then ex um, kind of utilized for their commercial purpose. And as a result of them, a lot of the pharma industry as we know it today are based on these huge government grants, huge subsidies, huge R&D funding that has led to a couple of champions that are global champions. Today, as I know it, and I'm speaking here with my finance hat on because that's another piece of education that I've invested in, which is, so I did an MSc in finance um, and my thesis was on looking at the pharmaceutical company's revenue model. And when you look at their revenue model, 70% of all their revenue, that's not profit, that's revenue that they, comes in through their front door, gets pushed out towards marketing and sales. Very little ends up in research and development. These institutions, as we know it today, are really buying houses of power. What they do is they trade in small businesses, they buy small businesses, they sell their old um, kind of inventory or their licensed products. And the reason they do that is because they can buy at a cheap price a biotech or something which they can develop further add value and then sell at a higher price. That's what they are, okay? Very little of what they do is novel. A lot of it is based on academic work that institutions like our university funds, institutions like our government funds and supports, provides you know, support for people like me and other clinical researchers. And it's on the back of that that pharmaceutical companies end up commercializing and making money. Now, I don't see why, given our history, we may not have such champions again. And what I would not be very surprised with is that we come out of this period and suddenly the government says, okay, we're going to fund this much research or we're going to fund this much drug study. And I think the UK government might do that. The US government almost certainly will do that. Um, a lot of the pharma companies will be really happy with that because what that means is you're having a diversity in that research pool. Because right now we're all looking at ranzizivir. We're all looking at these monoclonal antibodies um, to try and save our lives. Those happen to be also the most commercially viable for large pharma. But we're not looking at the small chemicals we assume the small chemicals have been saturated. We assume we know everything that there is that was easy to be had. But that's an assumption that isn't necessarily founded and we could have surprises there. So I think it'll be back to basics kind of research. You know, I think we might have a huge wave of scientists. But, and I think like you know, after the moon landing, you had all these people wanting to study physics maybe at the end of this COVID uh, era, we will have a huge plethora of scientists coming to study to really challenge and break down. The other strategy um, is molecular modeling. Looking, and I know there are some teams racing right now. There was a Chinese paper that I saw recently looking at Randesivir, using Randesivir as a modeling target to see how it would work and trying to characterize its mechanism of action. That's brilliant. Uh, another um, th there will be other kind of genetic genomic studies that haven't yet started or have just been approved or won't have an outcome for another two years so really it's it's slow it's a slog mm. <laughs> but we will get there yeah. and i think this will take this will be a new era it'll take off yeah yeah um, In many different directions yeah, I mean, we're talking on the day where, you know, there are some small lockdown um, easings 
uh, in the UK. Um, and obviously there's the very real uh, risk and danger and concern that a second peak could be on the horizon if if this is all mismanaged. Um, and with that in mind, there's a real desperation to get something sorted um, in terms of drugs or or a vaccination. Um, so how, this is the million dollar question, but when do you think, is it going to be this year, do you think, that there'll be, that because if it, if there, if it isn't, and there are second peaks, and there are certain governments that will be under pressure from certain political wings, that will be pushing to get this all lifted a lot sooner. Uh, and if there isn't the drug treatment there, it, this could be absolutely more, far more disastrous than what we're experiencing right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> tricky, isn't it? <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. I don't think, I don't hope and pray. I kind of assume there will be a second wave, a third wave. There'll be a ripple effect. Um, we have a massive density of population. We have a tiny island. We can't escape anywhere. We can't go anywhere. Those people who are really at risk continue to be at risk. Um, easing lockdown restrictions, you're just improving, you know, you're increasing the velocity of spread. You're increasing the transmission. Um, and maybe, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. One, we shut down the economy, keep everybody physically safe. Potentially people are losing their jobs all around us and potentially you put them in harm's way economically. Okay, you keep them physically, their health is safe, but economically they're bankrupt. The other, the other coin, uh, face to this coin is that you let the virus run its rampage through the population. You will have a culling number of people, but you will recover and come out of it the other end faster and your economy will be roaring again. Both are bad choices. And if you look at those two extremes, the reason I look at those two extremes is because we have to try and chart a way, a middle way, where you minimize the adverse effects of both scenarios. So how do we do that? I don't know. <laughs> any, any, um, do, you, do you anticipate any drugs that might work this year? Or is that too soon? I think we might see some drugs be licensed. Right. I don't know if I don't, I think they'll meet the minimum legal definition of, yes, it helps, but right. <laughs> I don't know how helpful they will be. Okay. And yeah. I think there will be a huge money-making opportunity here as well. So that's not going to be given up easily. And again, that's going to raise political, economic, geospatial tensions over pricing, over revenue, over contracts, because... You, you and I'm sure and your audience have heard about how uh, PPE deployment or agreed drug sales that were contractually agreed were reneged on because the U.S. Uh, issued these laws of patriotism where basically they could reappropriate the services of their companies, privately held, publicly traded companies, to do government bidding. I, and, you know, you've touched on it before where some of these political pressures might be bigger than we are capable. I think one of the most fundamental things that we should do as the UK economy is to think about manufacturing our own drugs on our mm. own country, mm. on our own soil, so that we don't have these problems of transport, so we're not waiting on somebody else, so that we can manufacture. And that's been a tragedy in the last decades where we have kind of disassembled our manufacturing sites we have rolled away our um, the number of qualified persons for example a qualified person is somebody who signs off a batch of pharmaceutical drugs to say that this meets the legal definition of the license and it is of a good quality you know so pharmaceutical grade the number of qps in this country has um, that sign off such large consignments of drugs. The number of QPs in the NHS have been at historic lows. They have, in the recent years, been rising because the NHS is now dealing with making batches of um, proteins and monoclonal antibodies for their patients for cancer therapy. But really, we need a much bigger workforce 
in terms of drug manufacturing, even for simple things like paracetamol and ibuprofen. I don't know if you remember, but at the start of this pandemic, even now, the pharmacy workforce is hugely under pressure. Their shelves are empty of random medicines that we never used to sell, but are empty. Paracetamol and ibuprofen went out of stock when toilet roll was out of stock. How can you have that situation? Something that relieves a headache or children's fever is unavailable. I think there are more fundamental issues that we need to deal with, um, with respect to drug supply, security of drug supply, quality of drug supply. The other concern I have is people, you know, like our President Trump saying wonderful things along the way of, oh, you know, chloroquine, give it a go. <laughs> and and uh, which might be a good idea. It's just, it beggars belief. Mm. It beggars belief. And you think, okay, how, how, are we, how are we keeping our population safe and protected from this kind of medicine? I no. hope nobody has taken bleach, but you know. Well, yeah, I mean, you've, really, you've what, actually. What public health education do we have? You've got family living in living and working in the US, haven't, haven't you? So um, what, how have they experienced um, all of this in comparison to, um, to your own experiences, I guess? Well, they have, <laughs> it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. They have a massive diversity in their population. They have huge cultural, linguistic, educational diversity, and they have racial line disparities and deprivation, which, Compared to the U US, we are far better cohesive uh, society. And, you know, like my brother, he's a pharmacist. He does, he's not an academic, he's a community pharmacist. And he is working double time. He's working hard to continue to serve the community that he works in. Okay. My other brother, he is in New York. He is currently practically in a jail cell. He's in his bedroom. But he is triaging the kind of brain maps of patients who suffer from COVID as well as those who don't. So he's looking at their, their uh, brain scans and he's kind of saying, okay, this is the next line of therapy or, uh, you know, these anticonvulsants are working with it, try something else. Um, and my mom, she works for a cancer institute. So already her patient population is already diagnosed with cancers they are immunocompromised they have problems they are at extremely high risk and drilling the the so there are certain activities that spread covid you know because it's a droplet uh, spread of infection speaking singing these are high risk activities and drilling is one of the highest risk activities because you are vaporizing into aerosol the oral mucosal content you are drilling teeth it's saliva it's coated all in saliva and it is being spread in an aerosol around the face and mask of not just the dentist but their total team so these are incredibly high risk activities and she has had an instance where her co-worker tested negative tested negative tested negative tested positive ended up at icu you know in the course of their duty and it's it's really shocking that you think oh gosh why 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 did everybody decide to be a healthcare professional in my family and children sometimes right, it's a bit yeah. scary but it is scary from a personal perspective as well mm. and my aunt she deals with end-of-life patients so all her patients are terminal in one way or another and you know those are the last moments that you cherish I think about, I think, I personally think about my children's birth and I think I wish, I hope and pray that they are loved and surrounded by loved ones when they die because those are such precious moments. And this virus has really, it's what makes us human. It's what's, you know, the culmination of our life. How do we want to die? And do we want to have hands, gloves, face masks and the dissociative non-touching kind of experience we're all going to die anyway aren't we um one day so you know i think we need to there are some bigger social questions out there about what is living what is death? 
what is disease and how do we manage it? Because we have we have to manage all risks throughout life. We have to move on. We can't cry over it, you know. So how do we get there? How do we solve this problem? How do we yeah. move on? Right, yeah. Um back back here, obviously we have students who are have been involved in placement, working on front on the front line. We've got obviously our graduates as well who are now working in in practice. Um, for many, you know, this situation already will be defining their careers. They may never experience anything like this again. Um, it's an extraordinary thing that they're still in, that that they're involved in this, isn't it? I mean, incredible from them. Hats off to them. Yeah, absolutely. They are amazing. There are students in our School of Pharmacy who are volunteering. There are students across through the School of Medicine who graduated early to go and be doctors in NHS. There are nurses who are graduating early to do the same. And our students, you know, they don't have to. They know they don't have to, but they're doing it. They are taking the bull by the horns and they're saying, ah, oh, you know, this is what I've trained for. And that's amazing. And this is a baptism by fire. I mean, there is no doubt about that. This will be a life-defining moment because the next virus, you know, they, this will always be the benchmark for them because everything will be measured against this. Um, and I think, I, I have a feeling that some of them will be so changed by it, they might take on this study of this types of things as a speciality in itself. Um, public health has suddenly become very important and you know looking at the variables that contribute towards people who do die and who don't die things like ethnicity sex gender um that not gender sex um their smoking status their bmi rates obesity underlying health diseases these are all factors that affect many chronic conditions anyway but our students will be it will be so fast-tracked you know that theory and the stuff that we teach becomes so applicable in real life in situations like this that i think that they're amazing and, and they will learn so much more in this next six months than they have probably in their in their degree course mm. so i think they're amazing mm. i think they're absolutely amazing they are they absolutely are um in in the minority of coronavirus cases they can be tragic and incredibly sad outcomes of course um as we all know and i know you'd like to pay tribute to a former student of ours yes so uh one of our former students um miss Fuja sharma uh passed away from a confirmed covid-19 infection she was one of our um students ex-students she studied her undergraduate pharmacy degree with us but she was also doing her diploma with uh, Miss Eileen Sharp at the School of Pharmacy and Biomolecular Sciences so I would love to say give my sincerest love affection and condolences to her family as best as I possibly can virtually um, I understand our head of school uh, Dr. Kirsty Smallbone has sent a token gesture of our appreciation and condolences towards just family so and hopefully it's just one hopefully it's just one Sharma that we have to pay condolences to and hopefully our students stay safe say stay safe and healthy out in the real world and and yeah we do pray for them every day mm. thank you for that opportunity because our students are just phenomenal yeah i mean I so much to contribute Absolutely. And I love the thoughts, um, of course, with Pooja's family. Um, let's move away from COVID just very quickly, just briefly. Um, in a normal world where it doesn't dominate our lives, um, let's go back in time a little bit, I guess. Um, what would usually be your research focuses? Tell us about some of the things that you've been working on in brief, if you would. Yeah. Um, so my research focus is obviously around pharmacy practice. I love medicines and everything related to medicines. So um, my research focus has been around falsified medicines. I don't know if uh, maybe just for your audience, falsified or spurious medicines are also known as fake or counterfeit medicines. Um, and I've, I've kind of studied a little bit about that. Um, I've found that there are anecdotal 
um, sources of information that show that people are using increasingly medicines from online sources and or through non-registered pharmaceutical service providers. And those medicines or those drugs may not be of a sufficiently high quality or grade, which may result in harm that these patients suffer themselves, but, but these patients will also need to be treated for any kind of remedial um, kind of remedial work to bring them back to health. That's a burden on the NHS um, that's potentially growing. Um, and that's an area of my interest. So one of the studies I've published recently was looking at um, how community pharmacists understand and apply the falsified medicines directive. And found actually that there is this particular legislation that has come out, which requires pharmacy at the point of dispensing to scan every box of medicine to check whether it could be a potential fake, whether it has expired, or whether it is a medicine that's been recalled. And we found that even though this legislation exists, its implementation that should have happened on the 9th of February 2019 has not successfully happened yet. Um, and what that means is basically that the legislation is designed to improve public safety, protect health. It's not being implemented or there are barriers to implementation that we need to think about. There, there has been a period of time from that date now. Um, and maybe what I was looking to do was to conduct another study to see whether that situation has changed at all. Um, so that's one area of interest. Another area of interest is that, um, as we talked about, obesity and hypertension are some of the big um, conditions plaguing our populations in the developed and increasingly in the developing world. And some of the things that we should or could do is to provide um, blood pressure screening services via community pharmacies that are standardized, accredited, and approved nationally to certain benchmarks so that we can screen for approximately the 7 million people that are in the UK right now who have hypertension, who don't know they have hypertension, and as a result are at risk of strokes or heart disease and heart attacks um, you know, at the next event. And we know, for example, that community pharmacies are present in all areas of our um, population. You can usually walk to a pharmacy within 20 minutes. Most adults in the UK can do that, and they provide extended opening hours over long periods in comfortable retail settings that are not, um, that do not dis discriminate against patients on grounds of race, ethnicity, language, color, or any other such features. So they're quite inclusive environments. And my, my argument, my thesis, I suppose, my thrust of my research is that we should be doing this as a commission service through community pharmacies. We should be offering it to everybody. Because it's, we don't, I, I don't think it's that people don't know they're there at risk. I think everybody knows their body and they know when they're a bit pudgy. They know when they're a bit, um, when their health isn't perfect. They know that. Now, what they do or don't do depends on how much priming they have had. And if through community pharmacy we can prime people to check their blood pressure at routine intervals, maybe they will come to us when they feel unwell before they have a stroke or a heart attack. And we can do something with respect to, you know, the pharmacotherapy that we can offer another, get them into the pathways of managing their blood pressure. That, that itself would save the NHS a huge amount of money, but it's uh, fraught with difficulty and contracts and a variety of other things, um, which possibly is the reason why they haven't been um, commission so far. The other thing just personally I've noted through this coronavirus is that pharmacy has come as an afterthought to the government but our lobby and legislation have been strong enough to now bring pharmacy to a higher enough conscious level that we provide these medicines to so many thousands millions of people. We actually have a really important role to play in access to medicines. And pharmacy is an amazing profession for men, women, for anybody who wants to study it, because it's a four-year degree where you are learning really fundamental sciences, followed by one year of pre-registration practice, 
and then you're out in the real world. That's five years of training. Most people don't understand. That's the rigorous schedule that students have gone through. And we're moving towards a five-year integrated degree. Uh, at, at what point exactly that happens, I don't know. But that's basically the degree wrapped around placements so that you're experiencing and then learning at the same time so that you can make that connection between theory and practice. Mm. But yeah, I think it's... Uh, interesting times yeah we're talking about that just just uh, to finish off really um about coming to university of brighton clearly a lot of subjects like yours uh will be receiving spikes uh of interest because of the situation I hope so. that we're in i mean how yeah, would I... how would how would you pitch to a student thinking to study about studying pharmacy to to come to us and, and study I would say come to us and study pharmacy. <laughs> I would say that. I, I honestly, I, I, I believe it because uh, I work with my colleagues. They are amazing. They are scientists. You know, they're, they're pharmacists. But we all in the teaching faculty have experience of dealing with real people. People who come to you in the moment of their life when they are distressed, they are distraught, they have tried everything. The drugs are working or not working or the drugs are giving them side effects. You know, they will come and talk to us about a whole variety of private things that you don't even know if their husband or wife knows about. So I would say, if you want to make a real difference in this world today, come and study pharmacy and come and study it at Brighton. Don't study in London. You don't know it's so busy over there. Don't study it in the North. Come to Brighton, it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's, you know, your course is, a huge team here to support you. Um, the, the university has invested so much in the housing to provide for our students. We have beautiful countryside in such a short walk, yet a massive bustling, hustling city like Brighton if you wanted that type of life. Or you hop on a train and you can be in London within an hour. So many of our students commute. So, you know, don't, this, don't think about Brighton as somewhere lost or somewhere way it's so close it's so within reach and come to the south of england um study here because you will be studying with cutting edge scientists and th th there's no disrespect to the north because i i grew up in cheshire you know uh, but for me moving down to the south has been life-changing and i would encourage any stu student considering studying pharmacy come and study pharmacy at brighton great and pitch if you do it in London anyway, it takes you an hour to get anywhere anyway. So there we go. Oh, so good Lord. Um, right. Yeah. We, we end each podcast with some quick fire questions away from work. Just a bit of fun, just to get to know you um, a little bit better. So first of all, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? I'm pretty young, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Even younger. Um, uh, we, can all give, we, we, we can all give advice to ourselves back from when we were a teenager or something. I would say, I would say study hard. It's really simple. It's not, it's not easy. It's simple. Study hard. Study like you have never studied before. Do the best work that you possibly can because you know what? That makes you brilliant and that makes other people want to work with you. Do the best you can. Honestly, in your own self, have you done the best? If you have, then you can sleep at night. If you had unlimited skills and you could pick any other subject to study at the University of Brighton, what might that be? Well, I'd love to study statistics um, because I think, yeah, I think modeling, uh, mathematical modeling is the way forward. Um, so I would study statistics. I would study computing. I would study code. Mm -hmm. I would study programming. <laughs> I would study more STEMI subjects. I would just study. Yeah. Okay. Um, what positive changes have you experienced from life in lockdown? There have been lots of positive and negative experiences, I suppose. I think I feel closer to my tiny baby. My kids are small, they're um, six and three. So I feel really blessed that I can lock down in with my own family. Mm. I feel very blessed to have a nice family. Um, these are some of the works that I'm studying. Mm -hmm. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, very different. different. <laughs> 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 
Um, um, but but it's been it's been good because I've been able to read some of the works that I have been meaning to. You know, there's when you're busy, you just think, oh, I'll get back, I'll get back to that, I'll get back to that. And you never do. But I've been reading more, I think now, uninterrupted kind of reading, deep reading, deep learning mm. during this period. I think it allows you to focus on one thing without being interrupted. Yeah. Many times. Uninterrupted reading with a three-year-old. That's a, that's a, yeah, it's tricky. Is that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Pick a favorite place in Sussex. I would pick the seafront, the Brighton Marina. There's mm -hmm. nothing quite like that, um, day or night, um, because you see different kinds of creatures come out through the day and through the night. And it's, it's lovely, it's beautiful, it's safe, it's clean, and good people watching kind of space. Yeah. Um, when lockdown is lifted, if you could give visitors to Brighton and the area a tip or something to do or experience, what would you suggest? I would suggest that they come and see some of our um, pint-sized science or some of our soapbox science. Um, we have a professor, um, Professor Hal Zabowski, who does performances for school students. Um, I would go and see his chemistry explosions to, to get a feel for the city and the kind of science that we do here. Um, tell us something interesting about you, which a lot of people may not know. I like to read, but that's not interesting or hidden, so I don't know. I can't, I can't think of anything that... That's okay. Not, <laughs> if, you, if you could pick three people to host for a dinner party, who would they be and why? Kevin Posey, <laughs> Ray Dalio, uh, who is an amazing investor. And I would pick somebody really cliche like Indira Gandhi because she was a female um, trying to chart territory for her country uh, during difficult times as a woman with a population that was starving, a little bit like the population in the world today where we are under threat from an unknown kind of force. Um, to see, you know, how her leadership and and Ray Dalio, you know, his his book on principles, his ethos and thesis of work is very much go do it, find out, learn, come back, reiterate, reiterate, faster, faster, better, get more feedback. Don't let your ego get in the way. If you're doing it wrong, take the advice, take it on the chin, improve, learn from that. And, and I that. I think that's what we need to do as a global society. We don't know the answer. We have to move forward. Ravina, thanks so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Really interesting to hear about the search drug treatment for COVID-19 and, and all the other bits that you're talking about as well. Really interesting stuff. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast via YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or any usual podcast app. Do share, leave a review. And next week, it's a Mental Health Awareness Week special. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.